0: To really be able to create models that help with as a, as a tool for prediction, you need high volume of data, which also, by the way, helps take out bias. Um, you want a variety of data, again, going to bias, and, and generally better machine learning models
1: and veracity, the truth of the data. So that's sort of the step one. Data science and AI are transforming healthcare. That's Chez Partovi, the Chief Innovation and Strategy Officer at Royal Philips. Seven years ago,
0: Philips uh, decided to divest of everything other than healthcare, and it's really now a health tech company. So while you may see Philips lighting still, it's really just a licensing. Philips itself is now a 100% health tech company focused on the continuum of care, uh, everything from at home, ambulatory, inpatient, and so on. So when you think of Philips now, think of it as a health tech company. It's a 130-year-old startup because it really transformed itself 10 years ago. So it's like a startup that's 130 years old.
1: You're a physician, you're the Chief Innovation and Strategy Officer at Philips. So, uh, tell us about your your role and, and the and the work that you do. Where you're focused. I
0: have one of the best jobs in the world because I get to work on the strategy side. I get to work with customers and to understand their unmet needs and to work backwards from customer problems and then work with my colleagues to create a strategy that would have Philips solve those problems for our customers. So that's the strategy side. And then on the innovation side, when we listen to our customers and what problems they have, then we have to look and see, well, how do we innovate on their behalf to solve those problems? And so the entire innovation community inside Philips is part of my remit. And what we do is to listen to customer signals look at the market trends and then canvas technology that we have or that's external to Philips and how to put that together to be able to delight the customer, in this case, whether it's a health system or whether it's a patient. That's the job. It's the nexus of listening to customers, getting the signals, creating a strategy, and then turning to the innovation teams and saying, how do we delight our customers inventively? How do we innovate on their behalf? And Then go to market with those propositions. So That's the teams I lead, and it's just literally like a kid in a candy shop is the best place to be.
1: I know a lot of your work is focused on data. Can you shed some light on that aspect of it? We
0: have now in healthcare a lot of data creation, data generation. And of course, the the cynics would say, well, yes, and," and most of that's used just for billing, particularly on the U.S. lens. Notwithstanding that sort of perspective, it is still true that a vast majority of data is not digital. When you think of, for example, the classic a clipboard that you would go in and fill stuff out. Now you probably are filling stuff out online, which means there's digitalization of data. What's what's really that? So that has occurred. But what when you look deeply, you find a few things, um, and I'll just mention them briefly, and then we can maybe talk about them. Which is the mechanisms and processes of digitalization are not necessarily seamless and frictionless, meaning there's a lot of repetitive menial tasks. And and when folks talk about clinician burnout, physician, nursing burnout, is partly related to the fact that while we are digitally transforming, they're not necessarily in a frictionless way. They're not workflow aware and they're repetitive. So that's, that's the process of digitizing is not optimal. Then having digitized and created data again, notwithstanding the billing aspect, some would argue that we haven't made meaningful use of that data in a really amazing way. So, we are perhaps data-rich, but insight-poor in healthcare. So, A, we struggle in a friction-laden way to make the data, and B, sadly, we don't really create incredible insights from that data. So, those are the, that's where we are sort of in healthcare from my lens
1: what is it about healthcare that leads to, the, to to these two fundamental issues that you just mentioned
0: what we have is a couple of challenges which is one the data is generated is right now still much more application centric which means they're sitting in silos and so while you know some organizations i remember when i was in a health system we had like 1500 or uh, 1500 applications so now you imagine you're digitizing data. It is in the application environment, but you're 1,500 of them. And so the absence of data liquidity means that while you have digitized and put the data on disk, you've not necessarily been able to combine that into an environment that then from, from which you can garner insights. And so, so this because we're in this transition to digital forms, we are in a... Part of the world part, part sort of the development of this where it's a lot of isolated environments. And of course, as you know, there's a lot of work being done to bring all the data together um, into an in- common environment from which insights can be generated. So it's partly where we are, partly in this transformation, digital transformation is they are siloed. And again, different countries are in different stages of either laying down regulations that say, Yes, I get it. That's an application, but you must allow it to freely fo- go back and forth because we want data to be the point of care. So uh, some regulation is happening, and of course, technology is also advancing. Philips has an environment called Health Suite, which is about data liquidity. It's about bringing in data from hundreds of different sources, so that even though it's not the application tier, it's at this data liquidity tier that allows you to then go, okay, so I have the data, combine it, and then generate insights from it. So, that's sort of where we are because of this part of the journey we're in. We are still fractionated, and a lot of health systems are struggling from the point of view of combining data into
1: into a common environment. So, the issue of data liquidity, that is fundamentally data sitting in applications that do not share that data. Is that correct?
0: It is. And data interoperability actually is really, uh, you should think of two dimensions, which is there's syntactic interoperability where you're just data sharing and there's semantic interoperability where you're where there's the meaning of it is being shared as well. And so, yes, we're in this place where we have a lot of data silos, but then there's also great progress being made around interoperability, not where we want to be, but I don't want to pretend like we, no progress has been made. And now there's more and more uh, interoperability happening, which is a precursor to now what? In you know, other words, now that you in some organizations have generated liquidity, so there is a desire to go from data to information, from information to knowledge, from knowledge to insights. And so that's the journey that's AI enabled, of course, um, that we are in many places, we are on the sort of that journey in the precipice of uh, getting to insights at scale.
1: And we have a a very interesting question on LinkedIn on this very topic. And this is from Miles Sewer. I know Miles, he works a lot with uh, chief information officers. And he asks this So, how do you move from being data rich, as you just described, to being data driven, meaning making use of that data? For the audience,
0: let's at least get some common framework of data and insight. Um, because it's a term used by a lot. And this, at least in this discussion have an understanding. So I'll give an example of going from data to information, information to knowledge and knowledge to insight. And the example I can give you is, let's start with a single data point, like a blood sugar value. And I've, if you have a single blood sugar value of like 140 milligrams per deciliter, it's high. Um, but on the other hand, is it because the person just had a meal? Is it a fasting blood sugar? Is it not a fasting blood sugar? So that's a data point. Useful, but not, insightful yet. And so if we now if I give you, Michael, a trend of sugars that's going up, now I've given you information. The information is that the trend, this trend is going up, and you start to say, huh, something's going on here. If then from there we look through the history and understand the patient may be pre-diabetic or diabetic, now you have knowledge of the patient's condition. But today, what health systems are asking for, what clinicians, physicians, nurses, Organizations want in order to affect the quadruple aim in a positive way, improve quality, reduce cost, and improve experience. What they want isn't just data, information, or knowledge. They want to ask the following, answer the following question. What is the likelihood that this patient, whose blood sugar you showed me and is pre-diabetic, what is the likelihood they're going to have congestive heart failure in the next 18 months? What's the likelihood they're going to have diabetic foot ulcer in the next two years? This prediction, this insight into the future, this is the the real opportunity when you bring data together and you're able to use that to build machine learning models and use ai it's that looking into the future the prediction model that is really how you can be use the data to drive the organization with insights because you will probably as a clinician as a physician i'll give you this true example there's a team we're working with in new zealand where they were predicting the likelihood that a person would fill in the script upon discharge. And you have to ask yourself as a clinician, what would you do different if on the screen, there's a prediction that says red, let's just use red, yellow, green, that the likelihood this individual is going to fill that script is red. In other words, they're not likely. And at that point, you may ask more questions. Are there social determinants of health issues? There's other things versus green. Now you may say, well, we should ask everyone. I, I get it. But it's this idea of the prediction and the triggering to the clinician to do something different that is the connection to what you in the 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 uh, the, the question was the data driven it's data driven because it gives you the insight that changes what you might do so that's the thread data to information to knowledge to insights to some sort of actionable thing for me that I might do different in this case in this patient at this time in this moment, at this point of service.
1: Now, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Can you now ground all of this in patient outcomes? You started alluding to that, but what is the consequence on patients of these silos, and what would be the advantage? What are the advantages if if we have this kind of interoperability? First off, I always bring everything back to the quadruple aim,
0: which is how do you improve care quality, how do you reduce the cost of care, and how do you re- improve either the clinical experience for the clinician or the patient experience or the consumer experience in a sense, improve quality, reduce cost, and improve the human experience, no matter who the human is. And so when you and that's the frame that we i use we use at philips actually everything is in the frame of the quadruple aim and there are. let's just start with for example one one that i think is is perhaps even easier let's talk about for example how do you uh, in a, in a health system reduce cost? and one of the things that um, using ai with data can do is to help with what what is termed really operational forecasting which is for example what's the right size of the staff I need in my emergency department next Friday night? What's the the patient flow? Can I predict the patient flow through my hospital so I can right-size my staff? Which, by the way, impacts care quality, because if you are understaffed, it's a challenge. And so right-sizing is both a cost impact, a positive impact on cost, but also a positive impact on care quality. And so that idea of, for example, using an ADT stream, admission discharge transfer stream, to build a model that provides predicting prediction for patient flow through an organization, which is something that Philips does as, a, as, a, as an application, patient flow capacity. And so that's a model in which is a direct way in which you go from a very simple concept of a single data stream, ADT, initial seven data stream, to creating a prediction model that, dr- that can help drive the way in which you actually run and staff your organization, which impacts the experience of the patient. It certainly impacts the experience of the clinician. If they're understaffed, it's difficult, and it impacts care quality. So operational forecasting is one category. We just, and so let's put that aside for a second. And I already talked, alluded to this idea of clinical prediction. I used the example of the diabetic example, predicting diabetic foot ulcer or heart disease. And there are many instances of that, that that could be brought in. And and. So just to go, go a bit further, you could use, for example, clinical prediction to, if you're reading radiology films, you use that to look at films using AIML to re-sort the range films are reviewed by the radiologists because you're either identifying or predicting an anomaly and you, you say, well, I think this film should, the algorithm says this film should be read sooner because there's going to be a care quality impact if this, if this prediction is real this finding and the algorithm is real, then the radiologist should look at it and effectuate positive action. And so instead of reading it by the order in which the films were taken or the CT scan was taken or what have you, you the, the algorithm re-ranks the films at the top. It's read first, care is delivered first, positive impact on patient outcome. So those are the ways in which when you look at how do we use AI, ML, AI and machine learning to positively impact healthcare in using the quadruple aim concept, Operational forecasting, and clinical prediction are the two lenses that I use when I think of how do we, at Philips,
1: help make a positive impact on individuals. We have uh, an interesting question from Twitter, and this is from Arsalan Khan, who's a regular listener. Thanks always. Thank you, Arsalan, for your great questions. And he says that a significant amount of data is held inside very few uh, market-leading Applications, so why would and this is his term he's using? Why would a monopoly have an incentive to share that data? So, in other words, aren't the market forces of software essentially and back in, and infrastructure don't those militate against the kind of sharing that you're describing? The data belongs to the health system as a proxy for patient care, and
0: so the software event uh, companies actually don't own the data. For example, Philips doesn't own the data. We are stewards of the data for um, for the organizations which we which we serve, and so in the United States, at least, there are now. Regulatory requirements that says you you can't um, n- not share the information, and for the benefit of the patient and society, you have to share. I, I do know there are countries in the world, and I don't need to name them because I don't want to badmouth them, where the software companies actually own the data, and uh, and and therefore that uh, argument is true. So, in U.S. at least, it's not trivial to say that I refuse to share the data. Um, information blocking rules would uh, would prohibit
1: that can you tell us the kinds of data that we need to be aggregating? I I know, again, you've touched on it, but maybe drill into the data itself. If you're thinking of AI and machine learning and clinical prediction,
0: operational forecasting, you want to start from the problem and work backwards so that you know what data you need. Because if you think of it this way, um, Google Maps if you remember, there's a time we just showed you the direction and the time, you know, with the red map, heat maps. Then later on it was, hey, here's how much how long it takes for a bike to go that path, here's how long it takes for a human to go that path, here's how long if you want to call an Uber for that path. And because based on the prediction and the value they want to deliver, they were gathering more and more data. So when you think of your organization, you have to work back from when you say what data should we gather, Michael it's a question, well, well, A, data is likely digitalized, but as you look at what data to bring together to create a model, you want to start from the problem and work backwards. So in the case of, let's say you say, I want to predict length of stay because in our organization, um, it's really important to predict length of stay because we're trying to be a very agile and and, um, uh, right-sized care and efficient. And we want to know length of stay because we will align our care services. The patient comes in, and our average length of stay is three. If you can predict for me that this patient is likely going to be your six days, I want to put more resources on this. Why is that the case? How do I look and see what's going on? does it? So if length of stay is the question, then you might all you might need is ADT Street to predict length of stay. On the other hand, if you're trying to predict if a person has a particular disease or a particular cancer, uh, you're going to need perhaps imaging, blood values, EHR data, electronic medical record data. So you want to start from the problem statement and the the thing that you're trying to predict and the tool that you want to give to the clinician or to the operational teams and then work backwards from that to see what data you need to, to be able to build that model that gives you that prediction
1: and how do you make those decisions in terms of which problem to solve because in some cases you you because you don't want to go down a a rat hole where you you try to solve a problem and it's not the right problem, or you don't have the right type of data. So how do you make those decisions?
0: When we look at the way in which our customers are st- solving these problems, this is generally the way they go at it, which is you have either operational people that are trying to solve operation. And they literally every organization has probably a lean team. I mean, that was really in fashion a while ago. Now, you know, transformation teams, there are different names now for them, but they're all going around trying to solve, and then there, of course, there's clinical excellence teams as well. So you have Let's say operational excellence teams and clinical excellence teams. I'm willing to wager your organization has, it might be called something different. And if you go to one of their steering committee meetings and sit there, they'll probably know the things they're trying to solve and the, the things that are scratching their head out. And I would say that's where you start from. And in fact, that's what our customers tell us. That's where they generally start from, is from those already teams, whether it's the chief nurse officer that's running uh, a clinical excellence program or the chief medical officer or it's the COO and she's running an operational lean program, excellence program. There are challenges they're trying to address. There is data which can upon which machine learning models can be built to help them as a tool to be able to address those problems. And so what I would say, and what I've seen be most effective in our customers and and, and, and if I were running a, a health, a, if I was CMO for a health system, I would start from those places as opposed to saying, what you and I might be talking about tonight, which is, I wonder what we should solve. There are problems plenty. And you want to start from those that are already on your books, the ones you're already working on. And consider AI and ML, machine learning. When I say ML, I just mean machine learning. AI, ML as a tool for those teams. That's it. It's not a whiz-bang, new, fan thing. It's a tool for the teams that are trying to either bring about clinical improvement or operational improvement that's the best way to look at it in my humble opinion
1: in other words solving the direct practical problems that you may face whether it's on the clinical side or the operation side
0: absolutely the simplest and in fact it probably lines with the i mean i'm being practical now it probably lines with the organizational kpis it probably runs with the team kpi i mean it really is the simplest straight place to start is with those things
1: are the challenges of becoming a more data focused healthcare system that makes use, more effective use of the data, are these challenges primarily technology or process bias, op- operational aspects? First and foremost, you of course need digital data. And, and in, with respect to data, there are
0: the three Vs the, the volume, variety, and veracity to really be able to create models that help with as a a tool for prediction. You need high volume of data, which also by the way helps take out bias. Um, You want variety of data, again, going to bias and and generally better machine learning models and veracity, the truth of the data. So that's sort of the step one. Now, from from the data itself, the steps include things just to get technical here for a moment, you need to actually train a model, you need to label the data, which means this is the this is what this data means. This is what it doesn't mean. Generally, is a human that does the labeling. You label the data. You train the model. You have to validate the model. And depending on if you're going for FDA sort of as, as for example Philips, we're going for FDA review. We need to not only validate it, but meet certain requirements. Um, do outcome studies show that it does? Again, that that's more of a on the vendor side internally to help for operations. You wouldn't need to do that. So data volume, variety, veracity, labeling, machine learning, uh, modeling, uh, validate, testing and validation, and then possibly beyond that. So those activities are why generally, if your organization wants to do this, you probably want to partner with a health tech company, unless there there may be some in the audience that are um, sophisticated academic medical centers that have affiliation with universities that have folks that want to come help or even have hired people that want to do this. So When you ask me what are the obstacles, it it depends if you're implementing tools that that perhaps you're getting from a Philips, or if you are wanting to build those tools and do it yourself. And in that case, you probably have a choice. You might partner with a health tech company that helps you or uh, some sort of a firm that does that, or you might decide that you're really gonna build an internal competency to do this. So that to me, if you if I were, if someone stopped me and said, Hey, Shaz, I want to do this, what's gonna be my biggest headwind? I said, That's the biggest headwind. The tools are out there, but putting it all together is gonna need competency, training, upskilling. And so you either build it internally or you partner.
1: Makes sense. And I'm sure that there's also a very important uh, team building and talent management aspect of this as well.
0: And then there is integration into workflow so that it's trivial, frictionless. For the end user to use it. I would be remiss if I didn't say that because it's not about tech, it's about workflows, about people in process more than about platform. So yes, I I'd focus on the tech side a bit, uh, but yes, without exception. And if you've done that, how do you get it into workflow in a point of care so that it's easy to use, it's frictionless, it's not this other thing over there, it's embedded. And again, that's where you either partner, you might buy something off the shelf that does all this, or if you're going to do it yourself, you have to think workflow.
1: Let me ask this question from Elizabeth Shaw. Who says how can an organization create this kind of enterprise-wide view into the data as it's coming from the various system uh, systems of record from the different different software vendors essentially different systems.
0: You want your data to be in a in an environment where it all comes together so that you can so so technologically at the very least you have to consider that you do need a holding area. Um, it, what do you call it? Data lake, call it whatever you want to call it, a health data space. You need an area where the data, where you can have off ramps from the applications, ideally using standards like HL7, DICOM, um, Fire. off ramps from the applications into a common area where it has those standard on ramps. So you create this data environment, it's got the standard on ramps, you have off ramps, and you want to be able to stream that data. Not, not that you're moving, as as I think the question I probably asked. Not that you're moving all the applications here to this to this environment, but rather that you're off ramp. You let the application do what it's got to do. It's a PAX application, great. Do your work. If it's an EHR, great. Do your work. You just need off ramps that bring that data to an environment upon which and use the, the question. Use the term visualize, which I think is important. But if you remember, I went back. I said there's data, information, knowledge, and insight. Visualization is a term I would use for the Data to information. So I said, hey, if you have a graph, and I often associate visualization with this idea of show me a dashboard and a graph. I think the more powerful thing, and it's likely what was implied in the question, is how do I create insights from that data, which is a higher order return on your investment than simple visualization. So I think you do need a data lake environment of some sort. And by the way, ideally in the cloud, because if you're going to run machine learning models, you don't want to buy expensive GPUs that's sitting in your data center idle 23 and a half hours a day and only for a half hour running a GPU uh, to do something you want to use the cloud so that you pay for what you use you use the most sophisticated machine learning model training sets uh, um, training technology and only pay for the part you use because if you're trying to build it in your own data center you are going to overpay for stuff that you only use a fraction of the time don't do that
1: i'll just tell you just my own personal quick story which is I won't say the healthcare system that I use, but I stick with them. One of the reasons there's there's a couple of reasons they're they're great great doctors and so forth. But there's also lock in information lock in because they have a patient portal, and it doesn't easily get tests or what have you notes from doctors if I go outside their system. So there is this built in. Gravity towards locking in the patient, which again kind of militates against the sharing that you're describing.
0: That's definitely difficult. I, I, by no means, that I suggest that it's easy. Um, I'd say that a good example of an organization that's trying to do that sort of, for example, broader beyond themselves is UCSF. UCSF, uh, and this is the public domain. They, they, uh, we have a great partnership together, and 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 using this common shared environment, which I referenced, uh, they are actually bringing data from. Practices outside their uh, the UCSF uh, environment and trying to create a holistic view that makes the movement of patients between practices trivial and easy, information sharing trivial and easy. So you're right; it's not. It's certainly not the default, uh, um, the de facto default mechanism. On the other hand, if you ask me, just how would you achieve that? It is going to be achieved through some sort of a common environment and health data space where you're building in the cloud, allowing off ramps. And I guess when I said off ramps, in, in theory, it really is off ramps, not just from your own applications. And in this case with UCSF, it's off ramps from partner organizations in the community as well in the Bay Area.
1: Arsalan Khan comes back with this question. He says he wants to know about uh, who should be responsible if there's bad data, bad algorithms, and as a result we make incorrect predictions. And so, can you? I think that gets right into the heart of some of the ethical issues that come up. So maybe you can tell us about that. We continue at Phillips to believe that this is a tool for a clinician. Um,
0: to help in their decision making, but that ultimately you want to have the clinician be the ultimate decider. So, and, and we can come back to this if you. But that's the first and foremost philosophically, at least from our point of view, we're looking at how to create uh, a, a tool that improves well-being, is transparent, is fair, and is a tool for the clinician for them to do their job, just as a blood test would be or any other test would be. And so, there's this implicit connection where. Uh, and by the way, any test can have a false positive or a false negative, and clinicians through their training are synthesizing this and making a decision. So so that there's an, which is different than, for example, the algorithm making a diagnosis on its own. We can talk about that if you wish, but that's different. There's a tool to a clinician. Um, and then when it comes to bias, it, I come back to that comment I made earlier around the three Vs of volume, variety of veracity, and then validation, if you will, I guess that's the fourth V. And so definitely, the, the process of creating algorithms includes um, this this training with volume, variety, veracity, and then the validation. And in fact, it, it is we all talk about, uh, as clinicians, we talk about healthcare is local, um, which means is that the, a disease that's prevalent in one geography may not be prevalent in another. Uh, when I trained, I trained in both in Canada and the U.S., and I can tell you that a certain finding of chest X-ray in Canada was tuberculosis. The same finding in, in where I was training in the United States was coccidomycosis They're different. But it was because healthcare is local. So algorithms need to be fine-tuned to the environment in which they're being deployed. There's not going to be one generic algorithm for the world or let alone the United States. Healthcare is local. Training needs to be fine-tuned local. So these are the things as you get deep into this, when you get past the hype and the media talk of, Algorithms will replace doctors. You begin to, as you unwrap this and really understand what these models are doing, you begin to understand that they are going to have to adhere to the same rules. Of uh, They are affected by the same things that affect healthcare. So algorithms have to be tuned locally as well. And then one last thing I'll say, because this topic is really near dear to my heart, is that we are seeing a much more sophisticated um, absorption of AI and ML in Customers in health systems. And I'll give you an example. Um, it was delightful to see one health system have a chief ethics officer. And we were working together on predicting no shows to clinics. And, and this chief ethics officer was, was also in, in the sort of steering committee, as we were talking about. And we can predict no shows. And the question that came up in the room is well, what do we do with that information? You know, in the airline industry, if you're going to predict no shows to an air, you double book the seat. And so that may have been the first thought as well as just double book the appointment. Heck, we don't want to miss out on having a patient because after all, you know, you want to make sure you see people because it's care delivery and it's good for revenue depending on the country. Um, And then the question that came is, well, wait, why wouldn't they be showing? Could it be that they have um, scarcity and sufficiency? Maybe they are, uh, they don't have access to transportation. They need babysitter. And so then we realized that they realized that, that, there might be an underserved, com- an uh, an underlying principle that these individuals are underserved, that they're disenfranchised, and if the machine is predicting an no show, that the answer isn't a double book, because when you do, if they if they do show, the very people that actually need more one-on-one time get less one-on-one time because they're not double booked. So the answer may be, and they did, that you put together a team that when the machine learning model predicts an no show, they call. They see what you know. How can we help? That's not that they're calling to say, "Hey, my algorithm said you're not going to show." But Mrs. Jones, are you going to be coming? Mr. Jones, are you going to be coming? Do you need transportation? Uh, you know, you need. So the very uh, health system itself said, "What do we do with this information?" That's ethically right, and we're seeing that maturity
1: happening, and that's just beautiful to see. You made a very provocative point around that uh, the models need to be local, so or reflect local conditions. Who should be, who is, and who should be responsible for creating these models? Algorithms can be fine-tuned and systems
0: are built, and, and that's how we do it as well. Systems are built to be to train them to continue training as they're deployed. And so a model can be, tra- uh, is, can be uh, generically trained using that term in quotes and fine tuned even in the background when deployed in an environment before it goes into production and then continues training after deployment. So by definition, it becomes localized through its implementation
1: and ongoing usage. And are these models generally supp- going to be supplied by software vendors, by healthcare systems? Who By companies like Philips, who, who's, who's going to be supplying these models? All of the above. Certainly, Philips develops models,
0: and, and we actually have an, app, an environment called the AI manager that you can put our models in that manager and use it. Organizations build models and they can put an AI manager and use it. So, there are young companies that do it. I, I think he or she who has access to data um, can build models, uh, good data. So I think all of the above, uh, and we see a number of organizations, particularly academic medical centers, that are building models, and certainly a large number of uh, um, uh, companies are building models as well.
1: Did I understand you correctly that uh, that local local models is one pathway towards reducing the the bias inside the models?
0: Yeah, it contributes to the reduction because the volume, variety, and veracity, you, you meet the variety uh, criteria because you may have trained over here. And then when it goes local and it starts to get used, it's that the local variety
1: tunes the model. Where is all of this going over the next few years? And, and you know, not 10 years out, but in a practical way, uh, what's the trajectory? Just as you
0: have a bloodstream and you take a piece of blood, uh, excuse me uh, um, uh, yeah, I was going to say tissue, but you take some tissue of blood and you run a test on it, there's going to be data streams that you take the data and run algorithms on it as a test. That's really the metaphor I'd use. Just as you have blood pumping and you take a test of that, of that blood, you're can have your data flowing through the you know veins and arteries of the health system and you can ab- take that data and apply algorithms to it. So we will be ordering clinicians will be ordering algorithms as tests. Yes, there's the background algorithms that always run, but some algorithms will be more heavy and uh, may use a lot of compute, may actually eventually end up costing money because you're using compute to run them. And I think in the fullness of time, clinicians are going to order algorithms the same way they order tests. What's the time frame that you anticipate to, for, for this? I'd say we're probably looking at five, 10 years for, for some of the early indications of this.
1: Another question from again Elizabeth Shaw, who says, How can we ensure that data science is used to benefit patient care rather than just to boost profits? And at the same time, she also reminds us that technology is very expensive. And so, how does that get factored in? The, frame, the lens
0: through which one ought to look at AI ML in healthcare is how do you advance the quadruple aim and quality? cost and experience. So it's actually, cost is really one-fourth of the factor, if you one fourth for the, the matter here. Um, workflow impacting, of course, clinician experience. Uh, we didn't talk much about patient experience uh, just a little bit. So it is important that all parts of the quadruple aim, and, and organizations, and this is a call to, to us companies as well, that their focus should be on all aspects of the quadruple aim, not just cost reduction. I did comment earlier that If you are doing, if you're running operations more effectively, in my opinion, in cases, you are improving care delivery because understaffing, for example, results in poor care quality. You know, so so there is, they are tied. I don't want to make it sound like these pillars are separate, but the lens should always be the quadrupling.
1: What advice do you have for healthcare administrators who are looking at this changing landscape? They know they need to adapt but it's very tough for them because they're under such intense financial pressure, regulatory pressure, all kinds of different pressures.
0: I really do believe that in the early days partnering with an organization, and I know this sounds self-serving because I'm Phillips here, but I I would do this if I was a CMO because we talked about training, upskilling. We talked about the, the plethora of things that are required. It is not for the faint at heart. It is a heavy lift. Now, it gets easier. But my advice to administrators is that when you want to lean into this, is to explore the idea of having a tech partner and then working backwards from problems you're already trying to solve. Not, hey, what's a cool new thing we can do? Find a champion that's trying to solve a problem, bring in a tech partner, and see how can we apply AI AI, ML with this partner to this problem? That's how I would do as an administrator.
1: What would you like policymakers to know about this changing world of healthcare? I'd ask the question from,
0: are you interested in the quadruple aim? Yeah, of course, rhetorical because policymakers should and are, and that AI and ML has a significant role in advancing the quadruple aim. And so, it, in my opinion, in, in this day and age, improving quality and reducing cost and improving experience for patients and clinicians can be Powered by AIML, so policymakers should look at how they advance the adoption, removing barriers for AI and machine learning. Because the net effect of that is what their other teams at CMS, for example, in the US, want to do, which is the quadruple aim. So they
1: are tied together, and we should figure out how to advance those through policies. And with that, I want to say a huge thank you to Dr. Shez Partovi. He is the Chief Innovation and Strategy Officer at Philips. Jess, thank you so much for taking time to be with us and sharing your knowledge with us today. Oh, thanks so much, Michael. Thanks for having me on the show. And everybody, thank you for watching, especially those folks who ask such great, amazing questions. I I, I love you guys. You guys are such a great audience and you're so smart, so intelligent. So be sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Everybody, have a great day. Check out cxotalk.com for our upcoming shows, and we'll see you again next time. Take care. Bye bye.